Hey y'all, it's Io here with Noodle Nook and the Teacher Nook Podcast. And today I have an amazing interview with Maya Beshi, who's gonna drop us some amazing tips, tricks, and strategies for working with students with disabilities and having a great conversation about student outcomes versus IEP goals, as well as recommendations for teachers as they talk to parents about their student and their student performance. So without any further ado, let's get started with this interview. I'm so excited today to be here with Maya, who's going to talk to us a little bit about students with disabilities and her experience. So before I try to introduce her the wrong way, I'm going to let her introduce herself the right way. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ayo. I'm really excited about today. I really so am. <laughs> so I am uh, a teacher in a public school in Texas, right outside of Houston. This is my 11th year in education. And I actually became a teacher as an alternatively certified. Uh, uh, can I do a little whoop whoop because I'm an alt circle myself. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it is a, a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a unique road to travel, you know. I completely um, agree. Yeah, because I got my undergraduate degree in economics, did not know that I wanted to be a teacher, but all along I was teaching. So I've always been um, in the community and uh, tutoring students that were at risk, youth, all throughout undergrad. Um, I participated in um, associations and clubs and organizations uh, all the time. So it made sense finally when I um, got my certification. And I, started and, you know, I actually think that when you come to education with a background in something other than education, you bring a whole wealth of knowledge and make you so much better in the classroom. So, you know, I'm feeling it now. I, in the beginning, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> classroom management took a little bit, but after 11 years now, I'm really excited that it's, I stumbled into my life's calling. So the ACP process was very short and um, dropped me right into the world of special education, which is my heart and soul. I live and breathe special ed. And uh, You do, I know that about you. You are all sped. I am. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and so it really is because um, I've just had the privilege of working with such great families. There's so much diversity and across the years, it's been from age three PPCD all the way through 12th grade on campus and self-contained classes. Um, I've also done in-class support in the general education setting. And I've also taught students one-to-one -one, um, in the homebound setting who've had some, um, who are just medically fragile or were undergoing some significant life changes due to TBI or cancer. You name it, I've probably touched and taught. I, yeah. <laughs> and I completely agree with that. And I think what's also interesting is that you've worked with those populations across socioeconomic statuses too. Mm -hmm. So you've had students who would be considered low socioeconomic status, high free and reduced lunch campuses, all the way through to more affluent campuses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen families have full support, like 24-hour um, nursing care. And I've seen it where it's mom only or grandma only. 
Um, and in some cases where it's just, uh, you know, hired, um, no family at all, but just employees who are taking care of. Yeah, the, so um, your experience is vast. <laughs> and we're going to tap into that today. Um, so you've said before that special education is your passion. Is there anything specific to SPED that really gets you going? Absolutely. I think what I've really grounded myself in is um, I realized as I look back and reflect as an educator, it's really important to learn and grow from where you were the previous year or the previous semester, sometimes the previous week, right? What I realized was that I spent a lot of time focusing on what students couldn't do, and I was trying to remediate, 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 right? But by the time I made it to secondary, because right now I'm teaching at the high school level, and we have these last four to seven years, depending on what age they arrive, to really help them get ready to be independent adults. And I realized that I focused way too much on what they could not do. And I didn't spend enough time learning what their strengths were. And so now my, my every day, every child, every parent, every opportunity, I want to know what can you do? What are they good at? What are they passionate about? What do they love? What does it look like at home? What is it like after school? Um, and you find that families in some cases had never even shared this information because no one really asked and they were just all focused on the deficit. And um, that's a shame when you think about that because that part of being individualized for our students in SPED requires that we look at where a student is going, future transition plans and strengths so that we can really address their, their skill set yes. in their transition and post-secondary environment. Absolutely. And here's the kicker. Here in Texas, and you know this, um, we are required to start transition planning by age 16. Specifically in the district that we work in, we start as early as age 14. So plans are technically there. Right. So for the past 11 years, I've been creating transition plans. I've been having conversations about what we're going to do after high school. But for me, to be more specific about your question, my passion is I want to know what you're good at and what are the target outcomes, because the outcome is much different than an IEP goal. So the transition Say that one more time <laughs> outcomes. I want to know what's the outcome because an outcome is far different from an IEP goal. And I see all the time teachers in the classroom who take IEP goals and roll those goals forward, um, who cut and paste transition statements from when the kid was in middle school, five years ago, um, yes. and don't really use that information to formulate their plan. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that, that that's, that's it right there, the outcome. So outcomes, so just for anyone who may be thinking like, oh, okay, pause right there because I see me in that description. Tell me what's the difference then between the outcome. And I, okay, an IEP goal could say this student will um, independently manage their own bank account. Okay, there's the goal. Great goal. People will write that goal because they love yes. that goal. Great goal, right? An outcome is completely different. An outcome is more general. Are we expecting 
independent living with roommates, independent living with families? Are we expecting independent living on a campus dorm environment? Are we expecting um, community-based residential living with a household of strangers? Because how you manage your money looks different in every single one of those. All of those is completely different, completely mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. And do we want to target an outcome of a, what type of quality of life? So it, it can be gen, general, but feel very specific and tailored. Tailored is the word. It can be general, but very tailored to what the outcome should be. And the outcomes can change, you know, as Absolutely. they get older. Well, and I think to take this a step forward to think about this holistically for that teacher, kind of like us who was coming out of alt cert, maybe first year or two, still trying to conceptualize the outcomes versus goal. Mm -hmm. um, if you had a student who was still working on one-to-one -one correspondence mm -hmm. and maybe an inability to count past 10, mm -hmm. if their outcome is still to bank independently because their future includes living in a roommate situation, maybe with a cousin, but not with someone who specifically will be in charge of their finances. Correct, yeah. We can't continue to write goals for one-to-one -one correspondence mm. if the outcome that we're trying to address is financial independence. Absolutely not. And that totally transforms the, the conversation when it's time to plan annually, or even if you come back you know, biannually. That completely transforms the level of supports you're expecting. And it also allows, which is, probably we'll talk about this a little bit more. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it allows you to really get to see um, in, at home, right? What the impact of the IEP goals that you've created that they're working on at school, how is it generalizing? How is it transferring environments? Because that's Absolutely. the main target. What is it going to look like when they're all said and done with high school? Absolutely. And school is finished. If, and if, we can't write goals that are unsupported at home or not a part of students' future transition plans. So That's we really right. have to take that information into consideration when we create our plans for the student because we aren't independent of home and community and support system. We're not. Absolutely. That's right. Yes. <laughs> I know. It's like air five five. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because this is not stuff that you come equipped with when you first start instead. Oh no, it's not. Yeah, you're, that first year is baptism by fire. You're just trying to get the paperwork done by the IEP. Yes. And so, and so here, here's my thing now. Whenever I'm working with uh, families, I try my best and not everyone is there. Some parents, some families, um, you know, they weren't expecting that their child would have a disability. And so for quite a bit of them, there's still this lingering fear, there's some trepidation, there's slow movement, and um, they just got out of the woods in some cases, or their child is at an age that they never thought they'd live beyond that age. And they're in a whole- all of those situations, home. yes. So probably by high school, it's the first time they're able to really start to breathe a little bit. But I, I would love it if every new teacher and every collaborative team could begin with the end in mind. If we can just shift from being so myopic. <laughs> I love that, I love it. Well, you know, we do it for all of our, you know, everyone in middle school or most in middle school, high school, we start the college conversation, right? We start the, you. what are you gonna do for college? Cause once you hit high school, GPA matters. Well, for our kids with disabilities, we start that conversation a little bit earlier. Okay, so what are you going to do after high school? What are you going to do after high school? 
Let's begin with the end in mind. And I think if everyone really had a great grasp of here are all the wonderful things this kid can do, and here are the outcomes where we want to see them go, it is going to be a much more enjoyable and fun collaborative experience all the way through for everybody, yeah. you know. Well, and I think too, when you, when you think about our students with disability, the learning curve is long. Yes. Um, and so we do need to start addressing the end with all yes. of the precursor steps early so that yes. we can get to the end. Yes. Um, and we also know that the lines for services oh. Oh. the system are long. They are. So they some are. of these lists are 10 years to get services by um, federal servicing agencies, yes. um, MHMRA, MHADD, all of those, basically alphabet soup. If yes. you're not on those lists when the kid is 10 or 11 or 12, you might not get services when yes. they age out at 22 or 25. Right. So that becomes a really important part of the conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Avoiding gap coverage because a lot of parents, and I've, I've talked about this briefly before, um, they feel like they've been dropped off the cliff once graduation happens in high school. And then you have an adult child who is, you know, on the couch. Yes. And that's the worst place to be. It's the worst place to be. The regression is deep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, so when you really think about transition and the end in mind, I love that phrase, thinking about having that end in mind and thinking about where a student is going. How does that change what you do in the classroom? Okay, so that's a great question. So I'll receive, um, you know, the IEP documentation at the beginning of the school year with enough time to go through the formal individual education plan um, and even though it's three years old, in some cases, kids are up for renewal, um, it can still be very valid because there aren't many changes by the time they make it to the high school level. The, um, the, the drift or the, the growth or changes, it, it's usually more maturity and mm -hmm. you see um, a lot of the supports and strategies that they formerly needed, they may not need anymore. Um, but what I like to do is um, I take those goals um, and I read through them just briefly. I try not to even look at the name of each individual child. I just try to look at, um, I try to get a, a sense of who I will have in my classroom. And so then I'm waiting. for these out there, mm -hmm. looking through the FIE, mm -hmm. um, no matter how old is to see where those deficits are mm -hmm. um, in terms of the formal assessment. Yes. And I prepare my, my data collection method, however I'm going to do that. I brief everyone on my team, paraeducators and um, whoever I'm team teaching with. We, we sit down and we, we collaborate and we chat through all of those things. We get those things in place. And then I use my first week, the honeymoon phase, oh, uh, to just get a feel for the kids, who they are as people. Um, because one thing that I also used to do that I would caution new teachers is to not get caught in the fear trap of uh, reading about a behavior or hearing about a behavior that is going to uh, be in your classroom that year. Now, I'm not saying uh, pretend no. like it doesn't exist because <laughs> you definitely want to give great support to the student. Absolutely. Um, but you don't want to already set off because kids can feel 
the difference. Uh, the right we can feel the difference. So Absolutely. I'm I'm all about setting the stage with um you know full acceptance of just engaging with and trying to have as much fun and enthusiasm with the kids and get to know who they are, especially during the honeymoon phase, because for some, the honeymoon ends quite quickly. <laughs> so that's your opportunity. To well, get to and, and there's an important piece to that. So much of behavior is because of communication deficits, coping strategy deficits, mm -hmm. or quite frankly, deficits of the teacher that the student is assigned to, um, yes. whether that's relationship or a lack of support. And so one person's experience with a student with behaviors Mm -hmm. is not everybody's experience true yes yes there's so many things that the teacher themselves the environment contribute to that behavior that when you come in that first week and you've already assigned them the mm -hmm. bad label or the yes. trouble label yes you are just stepping into the shoes that someone else has already worn <laughs> exactly exactly and and nothing is more um reinvigorating for a student than to, and in, in, in my experience, this is for um, kids who don't use verbal language <clears throat> to communicate and those who do. There's nothing more exciting than being able to have a brand new start, a fresh yep. year. You can yeah, tell I the excitement. Too, when you're talking about students with significant intellectual disabilities all the way through emotional dif uh, disabilities, yes. like students in AB. Yes. The, to be able to walk in with a new teacher and say, okay, I'm getting a fresh, fresh start. I can make better choices here. Um, yeah. Can really just turn the, turn the page in the book. It really can. It really can. Yeah. Well, so that's what, that's what I do. Um, yeah. I, I have one more question because this, I think is very difficult part of working with support staff is to get everybody on the same page. Mm. Um, and I know that's a question that my listeners and my readers ask me all the time, which is, how do you get your para team to understand what you're trying to do and do it too? Mm. Okay. Over the that's year. like a thousand million dollar question. <laughs> if you can answer that, I will write you a check. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I, I give them a survey at the beginning of the year. Oh, it's okay. It's a short checklist. It's a one page checklist. And they get to rank what they feel comfortable with or have knowledge of all the way through what they don't. Because um, in economics, I'll just geek out for a minute, there is uh, a term called specialization. If a country is good at producing uh, bananas, it's not going to put all of its monies in factories and producing oranges. They're going to produce bananas because that's what they're specialists in, you know? So right. when I'm just meeting uh, new pair educators, especially, I love to give them this survey because I want to know what they believe they're good at and what they're open to learning because we're about to hit the pavement running, baby, once these kids arrive. Hot sprint. That is a hot sprint right there. <laughs> and most of the time, we don't have a whole lot of team time built in to just meet with our pair educators. They have other duties around campus. Um, it's, they're usually shared amongst all of us. Well, Absolutely. And I love what you're saying there is that, that different people are good at different things. Mm -hmm. And if you, like you said, are a country that's growing bananas, and I ask you to start growing oranges, you mm -hmm. might grow some oranges, but those might not be very good oranges. Be good oranges. But I, I could ask you to grow bananas all day long, and I could have the best bananas I've ever eaten day after day. 
So we do have to capitalize on the strengths and weaknesses of our team in order to address the strengths and weaknesses of our students. Yes. And nothing is more um, morale building, especially for paraeducators in my experience, than to get specific feedback on a regular basis on what went well. For example, you have a high intensity allocation, a high intensity para allocation, but you have not just tied one para to one student. If you are doing it well, you're, you've got a rotation going, so everyone has a chance to take a break, right? So I hope that that's what you're doing. And then <laughs> on, a, on a weekly or every two-week basis, you know, I'm looking at data. I'm looking at numbers, and I'm sharing it. Like, listen, this child has made gains in their lexile. Thank you for the work that you've been doing with that reading corner because it's not been easy given the behaviors we saw this week. And there's two things I love there. One is that you're bringing your para in as an equal, as equally invested in the success of the students. Absolutely. And the second part of that is, you know, our gains take a long time. (laughs) Sometimes we could work on something and it might take six months before we start to see the results of our effort. Yes. But those little incremental steps are so important to celebrate. Yes. Even if the celebration is, we did two minutes of reading today and nobody got slapped. Exactly. Exactly. I will take that as a victory any day. It is a victory because that translates into acceptance and the ability to participate post-secondary in a community experience, which totally increases the quality of life for somebody. So you're right. It is a celebration. And it's because of the work that they put in. um, Absolutely. And so lots of... I, I love that you've shared that piece about working with paraprofessionals that really... I think is very helpful to a lot of people who are coming into a special ed environment, even if they're coming from education or alt cert. Yes. That relationship is so important. And those are some great tips on how to build that. I love that. Yeah. So I actually have a question for you from one of our listeners. And I figure you are the perfect person to answer this question. Okay. I'm going to read this email from Jonelle. She says, I live in the community I teach in and always seem to run into parents when I'm out and about uh, running errands. The one thing they ask me over and over is, how is my son or daughter doing? What should I tell parents when they ask about their child's performance, either formally in the classroom or informally in the community? Mm. (laughs) You know, out out in the community, I am very careful. I like to be very general and I don't like to try and reveal that I'm even a special ed teacher because I want to make sure I protect the confidentiality uh, of the families and the students. Um, Oh my God. So important. It is. Do not divulge all the business about a student standing in the frozen food aisle at the grocery store. Right. But at the same time, it's really very flattering to me anyway. I feel like a celebrity when this happens, you know, because, um, I, I just, I enjoy the family. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, but what I, what I like to say out in the community is, you know, I think that I'd like to give a general answer. I think that they're doing really well in key areas and they are growing in other areas, or I may say, I think that some growth may be needed, but they're doing well. I'm very general. I, I have some verbiage that I practice 
so that when I'm in those situations, I'm not just uh, caught off guard. And then I ask, hey, do you want me to follow up so we can have a conference? Because it sounds like you want that. a few more details. And well, then and I think too, when you keep it really light in the community, mm -hmm. it, the focus really should be in the community is to foster the connection. Yes. So it, it's, this is not the academic environment. I would just follow up that and say, you know, in the community, you just want to say that you're excited to see the student. You're so happy to see them every day when they come to school. They just things that are light, happy, and relationship-based. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yes. And even connecting with the parent in that situation. Oh, they yeah. You, but maybe flip it. <laughs> <laughs> Do a little bit. And how are you? Are you guys doing okay? How's home life? Doing? Just to keep it light, conversational, and friendly. And, social. and friendly. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, it's really wonderful to be a teacher in the community where you live because you do get to get a good um, understanding of who is who and what's available and where things are so that mm -hmm. you have the context, the proper context. Also, when you're um, when you're back on campus and you're teaching, you know exactly the kinds of lives that you you all have, the quality of life you have in that community. Absolutely. I think it makes it much easier to determine transition availability, supports, and, and context. Oh, yeah. So back at home, uh, or sorry, back at school, once um, I, I can really address the question, I like to go back to um, asking them to give me a little bit more because parents don't often know what to ask. And so when they're asking, how's my son or daughter doing? Really, they have an idea in mind, and I just need to know what that idea is. So they're usually thinking in the context of an outcome. So it goes back to outcomes. And so I like to ask, well, what, what, what are you really trying to know specifically? Academics? Are you wanting to know about relationships? Are you wanting to know about behaviors? you know, give me a little bit more because I, I can tell you all the details that I have, right? So it and all I goes with a parent back to for years who was just so obsessed with this fry word list. <laughs> she wanted her kid to be able to read all the words off of the fry list up to like 2200 or something ridiculous. Hmm. And it, she prioritized it in IEP meetings, in data collection, in conversations. Mm -hmm. And I could never figure out why, but when we did have that conversation about outcomes, mm -hmm. it turns out that she had a transition program in mind and that program required a certain reading level. And in her mind, if they could read the 2,200 words, she could they could read and pass the test. Level. They could do the reading assessment. And I was like, wow, I see where your thought process yes. was. But if we'd known the outcome from the start, yes, we could have made goals that were more purposeful. Yes. Because what we did was just micro attack this huge outcome with this mm -hmm. little teeny tiny goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she was obsessed with this for years. And, and imagine the shift, the emotional shift, because you just cannot discount what it feels like to be at the table during an IEP meeting and not really get each other. You know, there's okay. just something that's lost there. So imagine the feeling of knowing like, oh, that's a great program. Heck yeah, let's get her ready for that, right? right. It's a different dynamic now. You're a team Absolutely. going for a particular outcome. And not just, oh, you didn't teach her all 222 
fry words. Oh my God. It was literally for years. (laughs) But that's that tie in that we talk about. We talk about, you have to have an end in mind. You have to have the communication with home and understand what transition plan looks like and the outcome and in mind for that student specifically. So all those things that we've talked about through this whole interview have really come back around in terms of meeting the needs. Yes. Janelle, that was a good question. And I want to, I want to just go back because something you said about, you know, when the parent stops you in the middle of the frozen, you know, because they're excited to see you, Uh, you know, they really are. And they've, they've got this opportunity. They're like, Hey, there's Miss Beshi. Let me grab her while I can. One thing you said um, was, you know, asking, so how are you guys doing? How's it going? I think that's part of, um, that's part of, I have an inventory, an adolescent strengths inventory that I like to provide to families. It has nothing on there at all to do with what they can't do. It's all about what can they do. Um, and I want to know more and more and more and more about that. And there's also a small section there about what kinds of supports the parents feel that they have if they have good emotional support, if they have, not that the school would necessarily be able to provide it for them, but knowing where their strengths are also helps because a lot of families being in the home and as a homebound teacher, I get to see like their faith is strong. They have great insurance. They have, <laughs> they have wonderful schedule keeping abilities. Like these are things that are going to naturally, um, because of nurture, be part of their child's repertoire. And so knowing those things are really critical. So I love that you even asked the family, like out of the market, like, so how are you guys doing? Because that's important to know. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. if you know that you're working with a parent who is really good with scheduling, like you just said, then you can use that in order to improve the student's outcomes. Yes. We can use that strength of the parent. Yes. Whereas if you were asking a parent who's terrible at scheduling in order to keep this very strict routine, you might be setting them up for failure because that's just not their jam. Yes. Knowing those things is actually very helpful when we try to generalize skills from the classroom into the community, into the home. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I loved Jonelle's question. Yeah, that was good. Thank you. Janelle, I hope we uh, helped you out with that. I hope we answered that question for you. And don't forget, you get a free resource from the Noodle Nook Library for writing that in. Um, We're going to jump over to the news now. Everyone has been quarantined forever. Oh, yeah. I don't know what day it is. I think it's like day 70 that we've been in the house. Has it been that long? Wow. It's been a long time. All I know is spring break happened and we never went back. We never went back. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had not left that sandwich in the refrigerator <laughs> before spring break. Yeah. The out. foods of minimal nutritional value in the file cabinet. Mm. God, I don't even want to know what's attacked those yet. Some, some little rodent somewhere <laughs> is like, these people didn't come back. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's this other piece of that. Students who traditionally only ever really get two weeks of a break off school, you yeah. know, two weeks for Christmas, two weeks between the traditional school year and an ESY session, yeah. two weeks between ESY sessions, have always been getting services and been at school and have now been out of the classroom Yes. for 70 days. 
and may not be back in until fall. Yeah. Which means it's like six months, right? A long time. Yes. Much long, double, it's, it's double a typical summer break that they're experiencing. And, and um, in all fairness, some of them get to participate in some kind of summer programming where they're still maintaining a basic, you know, skill set and they're not um able to do that in the same way right now yeah i mean i think anyone who teaches sped can agree that virtual learning Mm -hmm. and in-person learning Mm -hmm. are not the same Mm -hmm. they are not getting us the same outcome from the students now for some kids it works they are successful in either environments they have enough supports at home access to technology that they're able to do that with some level of success in the short term. Yes. Yes. And um, the article, there was the article in, um, I love Disability Scoop. Disability Scoop has some great, um, you have to sign up and um, be a member, I believe, but um, you, at least at one point you could get five articles for free per month. Yes. You usually have a cap off of how many you can access. So you can't go crazy, but you can get really good updates. And um, even if you read the headlines, it does give you some uh, better understanding of what's going on. What's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but the the article that you sent from Disability Scoop that we're referencing for this conversation is called Remote Learning Continues, but Students with Disabilities Still Falling Behind. Mm -hmm. And And when you sent it, I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Because this really struck a nerve with me, especially because uh, I feel so strongly after having taught kids one-on-one in the home for so many years. I really feel strongly about that outcomes piece. If they are struggling at home, significantly struggling at home, then the IEP plan was not focused on outcomes. Because if all of their functioning, best functioning was happening at school, we've done something wrong. Um, We didn't quite, or, or I won't say that we've done something wrong. Maybe they're just not at the point where they were ready to start generalizing the skill over into the home setting or other environments, but that needs to be accelerated. So there's something to that too, because over the past few years, teachers in special ed have been asked to find this kind of balance between academics Mm -hmm. and doing academic tasks that are similar to their non-disabled peers. And then this other world of meeting functional needs and really planning for future outcomes. So I agree with you. There are some goals that might not translate to home because they're so academically based, right? But there should be this other set of goals and outcomes at home that are really giving our students the best environment to practice these skills and outcomes to be targeting with the goals that we're creating. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, um, they, I mean, look at this. It's almost like getting a glimpse into what would happen should high school come to an end and you hadn't been prepared. So it, 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 there's a silver lining in that you know, school isn't finished. And we will eventually get back to some sense of normalcy, even if there's a new normal. We now have had this jolt to reset. And I think everyone, not just people with disabilities, we've all experienced it. 
And we've had to make some adjustments in our relationships, in our work, in how we earn money, and how we care for ourselves, and how we're relating to other people. Um, so I, I think that there is a silver lining there that we, we will be able to get back and we can readdress those plans and say, okay, we really were hitting heavy on the academics-based state standards stuff. But what I realized is that I am more concerned about how my son or daughter stands up and walks away or runs without indicating what it was that they were about to leave to go and do, right? right That's more right. scary for me. Yeah, um, and I think there's something to that, to that piece of it too, which is to really think as a teacher how you've been finding that balance between the academics and the functional. Oh, uh, have you created a plan that's just one-sided mm -hmm. or have we found this balance? But either way, even if you've crafted a great plan and you've been very thoughtful of outcomes, mm -hmm. this is a long time to be without services. It is. It's a very long time. And we've and... got parents who have checked out of the whole process mm -hmm. who are saying, you know what? I can't do what y'all do. I'm not a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm going to wait till they're back with you. You do the teaching stuff. I'm just doing the care. Mm -hmm. We've got other people who are like, uh, entire world has been tossed upside down mm -hmm. and we've lost jobs or we're essential workers and we are not home and available to support the student like we would normally be mm -hmm. during the school year after hours. So I think that the loss is not even as clear cut as academic and functional. I feel like there is social emotional loss here. There yes. is a loss of security. There's yes. a loss of relationship. There's yes. a loss of academics. Yes. Um, In every area. And so fast forward, and we're looking at a 24, 25 year old who now is without the comforts of paraeducators and teachers and um, school-based physical therapists and occupational therapists and speech therapists and music therapists and um, elective classes to go to and um, um, readily available, forced to be there along with them, student body, peers, social interaction, even when it's not all positive, even some of the conflict resolution that helps to build the skill. So all of that has come to a stop because now they're just in their room at home alone i i know it <laughs> what do, what do you have what do you do what's happening in the community what what can you what will happen um it's oh, really it, it like makes me so sad thinking about it because i know kids that only ever get in the standard when yeah. they're at school only ever talk to a same age peer or even non-family member mm -hmm. when they're at school yes. who only get to have access to nutritious food and a loving, caring environment when yeah. they come to school. Yes. And those things are all abruptly gone. It's true. Uh, well, so I, I'd like to think of this in a couple different fashions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. If we're thinking about a teacher who's been supporting students in special ed, I think this is a really good time to reflect on that outcomes piece that you talked about before and how to find this balance between academics and functional skills. Yes. Um, but I also think as a parent or community member, maybe it's how do we get our students to access the community more mm -hmm. um, in a purposeful way mm -hmm. so that we can close that gap between 
what they can only get at school and what they can get at home and in the community. Absolutely. And there is, I mean, there's been phenomenal work over the years with the Americans uh, with Disabilities Act and civil rights and even um, technology in the medical field, but even technology for the general population. I mean, Apple has transformed, Google has transformed our lives. Uh, apps have done everything from giving us freedom, you know, from just waiting on a bus. When you live in a suburb, where do you, where do you go mm -hmm. um, when you need transportation? So I think that um, we just live in a day and age now where we have a lot more opportunities to look at what's free and all readily ready accessible for someone who has a disability or who may have additional needs or challenges for getting around. Um, Absolutely. And to address, make goals that address mm -hmm. what will be coming for the student, not yes. where we've been. Yes. After all, I still see check writing goals out there in the world. Oh my gosh. I don't remember the last time I wrote a check. We have cash app push pay. Uh, and, and our students are very well versed in navigating iPads, you know, um, quite a few of them have their own devices. So these are easy ways, especially at the high school level. I know you have quite a few viewers across uh, age groups, mm -hmm. um, but it's never too early to start teaching them how to use and access or even recognize these things. I'll give you an example. I have a student whose um, parents, I didn't know this until I asked the question about outcomes and what are you working on. Um, the parents allow their student, he's now 16, um, he has limited verbal usage. He mostly um, uses behavior to communicate. Um, and it's usually with uh, pinching or hitting or things like that. He's about, he's taller than both of his parents. He's bigger than both of his parents. Um, but what they found is by giving him more responsibilities, that was what he was communicating. He wanted to be able to do it. It was a let me do it kind of thing. So when they travel, they use Lyft or Uber, and he is allowed to uh, manage the app. He knows how to match the license plate. He knows how to match the image of the driver, who it should be. He knows how to go and find the location where he's supposed to stand if it's not where they plugged in. And he knows how to tip. He knows how to pay and tip. I love that. I'm like doing somersaults over here. Yeah. This is, this is the outcome versus goal piece, right? Like this is the culmination of that whole idea. Mm -hmm. We can teach one-to-one -one correspondence or mashing items in the classroom. Yes. And we can write that as a goal, but what, how does that relate to the outcome? That yeah. I can match the license plate or the driver yes. is the outcome that we are really looking for. Right. So how can we be more thoughtful in the classroom in, in writing goals that are going to translate yes. to that success? Yes, yes. Um, and I completely agree with you on so many levels. One of the biggest things that kept running through my head while you were talking was, even though we're talking about students in secondary, um, and having a conversation about some older students. Mm -hmm. This conversation runs from K and pre-K all the way to post-secondary. <laughs> what is cute at five or eight or 10 yes. or 12 or 15 yes. might not be cute at 20, 30, mm -hmm. 40, yeah. 50. Yes. And so we have to be very thoughtful how we guide our students to interact with 
peers, their environments, materials around them, because they will retain that skill. Yes, they will. Throughout their life. Mm -hmm. So if you think it's cute that that little six-year-old comes and gives you a big hug and maybe snuggles their face in places. Yeah. It's cute at five. Will it be cute at 30? Right. Right. If the answer is no, then maybe we need to rethink how we're creating an environment in the classroom and how that's going to relate to the outcome for that student. Absolutely. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, I love that. Um, If anybody wants to read the article from Disability Scoop, I will link it in show notes so that you can get to that and read through it yourself. But uh, to kind of bring this back around, in terms of a teacher in the classroom, Mm -hmm. getting ready to go back to school in the fall, and, and you yourself too, what how, how, what? Yeah, well, this has been an, this has just been an, I hear the word unprecedented and I think I'm so tired of hearing it, but I'm going to use it. It's been just unprecedented time. And um, I've had to remind myself even that I'm not, I've not been working from home. I've been at home working during a crisis. Okay. And so I think just starting off the school year with that, Um, There is quite a bit of great research out there about trauma-informed teaching, and I know that on our campus, we've already begun thinking through those lenses. Um, Those of us who work in special education, we may already be well-versed in this because we have several students who come to us from traumatic backgrounds um, or things that have occurred that they probably, even even just having the multiple surgeries, is translated emotionally um, in their in their being as a traumatic experience that they have to overcome or when they're really sick. So I think starting off the school year with some of those in my toolkit, knowing how to uh, get some, some teacher strategies for dealing with uh, kids who have been under crisis or trauma um, and what that can look like. So we are going to need to um, do things like have greater use of the funnel method or um, where you're being more specific with cueing and prompting in the beginning, where you're having a lot of visual supports, a lot of um, nonverbal supports, high frequency use of these supports so that um, the processes and procedures and the relationship building Building the relationship and the rapport happens before you even pull out academics. I'm going to tell you right now, don't even try it. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to come back and hit the ground running like they always have. And I've heard some other people talk about how we need to come back more mindful of the students' social well-being and mental health. And I, and I think that's going to be a hard thing to bridge for all of our students as a lone teacher in the classroom, given how diverse their needs are. We're not trained in that. We're not. We're really not. Um, so I think the couple of things that you really said that I feel like, yes, please make this your takeaway as you go back to school is to fall back on those strategies that you know work. <laughs> visuals, a predictable schedule. You want your students to feel like there's some routine and some calm to the classroom. 
So make your environment as predictable, calm, and full of visuals as possible. Allow that extra wait time and processing yes. because now we haven't had to take in so much sensory information mm -hmm. at home mm -hmm. like it is at school. <laughs> so mm -hmm. give that extra wait time for students. Break those activities that you're trying to do into smaller chunks so you have more opportunity to do positive reinforcements yes. and build that culture again in the classroom. Yes, and really, 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 if I, if I can stress one thing, stay hyper-focused on everything that works well from day one and just talk about it, celebrate it, talk about it, celebrate it, because the more you focus on that, it will expand more and more. So get yourself together first. <laughs> and that might take a minute and lots of coffee. <laughs> and lots of coffee. And hopefully the administrative team, I, I'm, I'm sure administrative teams across the country are going to really try to focus heavily on how they can support staff and get us prepared with access to resources or additional personnel who do have the skill sets in social work and counseling, you know, because we don't know what kinds of deficits the students have had to endure over the summer with lots of jobs and lots of access. I think that's the hardest part is that we won't even know where their biggest skill gap is as a result of this quarantine and, and cl school closures until they come back. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But focusing on, on the procedures. Yes. And their strengths and, and celebrating and re positive reinforcement. So much of that. So much of that. I mean, just yes. never get tired of, of positively reinforcing. Well, at any time, I mean, like whether you're listening to this or watching this at the beginning of the school year right now, or a year or two from now where it's not, closures are not even a part of the conversation coming back to school and starting every week, every day, every semester, every year, however you break this down with all of those things, building a positive, supportive classroom climate, yes. having a balance between outcome and individual goals, taking students' strengths and weaknesses into mind when you're thinking through how to lay your classroom out, and then relying on routine procedures and visual support to make your students successful in the classroom. Absolutely. That works anytime. Yes. <laughs> anytime. That works anytime. <laughs> All right. So I always like to kind of start wrapping up by asking if you're reading any good books. Uh, yes, I am. Actually, um, I have like my little section of personal non, you know, work related stuff. I have one good book called um, This thing called you this um, thing called you this thing called you yes but that's that's personally but um i also came across this really great book called exceptional minds Ooh. Um, a teacher for 40 years um corinne she's uh written a book it's mostly about uh students with autism and um just finding all the exceptional ways um that they have been just amazing and really capitalizing on those strengths. So I'm that's actually a really good book. I have actually read that book. <laughs> ah, see, I'm a latecomer. <laughs> I, I, I like to read. I don't lie in the grass and ground myself when I do it. I'm usually hiding somewhere so that my kids can't find me. <laughs> but um, I think it's really interesting when you are a special ed teacher to read books, not only of other teachers and their experiences. <clears throat> Excuse me, but also 
how a person's disability affects their relationships in the world. Yes. And there's a couple really good books that do that, that kind of give you this perception change mm -hmm. and really ask you to look at a student with a disability, not as the teacher looking at a student with a disability, but as a person with a disability trying to navigate their world. Yes. And so my recommendation number two is not really a book, but it's the newest documentary that came out. It's on Netflix. It's called Crip Camp. Now it's Say it again? Crip Camp. I have not, I've not watched this one. I thought I finished Netflix. <laughs> now it's rated R, so viewer discretion is advised. There is uh, some language, but it's, um, there was a Woodstock for people with disabilities back in the 70s. And it was the, um, the root or the foundation of a lot of activism. And all of the activism were, was driven not by the relatives of people with disabilities, but those with disabilities themselves. They were masters at self-advocacy. And so they were all at camp together. I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to spoil it, but you've got to watch it because I think it puts at the forefront of my mind that I am not um, the person necessarily who always needs to stand out in front of the student, but I really need to equip the student to stand up for themselves and to really advocate for themselves and be able to communicate, hey, I'm not my disability. I am not my disability. I want you to- Oh, and it's so hard to teach that. Mm-hmm. But so important. Yeah. Presume I'm competent first and allow me to try and to do and to fail and to learn and to do it again. Um, so I just thought Crip Camp is an excellent documentary. Except I am trying to think about all the students I know right now at a Woodstock type event. <laughs> oh, we're talking good fun. <laughs> I, I guess I know why it's rated R. I don't even want to, yeah. Good fun. And it, it, you can see, you can even just see like their, um, their confidence being with one another. It's just, you know, to, to be just elevated, you know, um, you Aww. just gotta watch it. You just gotta watch it. Okay. So I will put those links in show notes so people can get to those. Um, and the other thing you said, presume competence, and that is one of my stop soapbox speeches, I swear. <laughs> so I'm actually going to put a link to the video for presumed competence and the blog post. So if you are not quite sure what presumed competence is about, or you wanna have a good resource to share with others on how to presume competence, use those resources to um, enlighten others. <laughs> and if you are um, either a teacher or a parent, I, I, um, I have a short little um, handbook, I like to call it, a pocket guide. It's called Prepare, Plan, and Prevail. And Ooh, I love that, say that title again. Prepare, plan, prevail. Yeah. So it, it really will walk you through simple, basic foundational steps um, to get your legs rooted and grounded in how to really prepare and plan out and then experience enjoying the outcomes that you set as a team. So I recommend that one as well. That sounds great. So we'll put that recommendation in show notes as well. Okay. Um, and for anyone who's listening or watching, uh, how can they connect with you if they want to continue following you and interacting? Oh, please. Well, I have uh, three locations. 
I've linked them all with one website. Um, so if you go to Linktree slash Ropes and Puritan, it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E mm-hmm. forward slash Ropes and Puritan. You will then get access to my Instagram, um, my personal website, ropesandpuritan.com, and my podcast, which is called The Brainstorm. I love it. So they can continue listening to you on the podcast, get to you out your website, and also follow you on Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? It's Ropes and Puritan Ed. Awesome. So folks, if you want to connect with Miss Maya here and continue interacting, uh, continue the conversation, please definitely check her out on Instagram, subscribe to her podcast, and head over to her to get more information. Maya, it has been a joy to talk to you today. Um, I usually don't have guests, so it was kind of nice to talk to a person. (laughs) No, you just talking for for a long time. And I enjoy your channel. Your expertise is amazing. Uh, And thank you so much for your wealth of knowledge and how easily you share everything. It's so great. Well, I appreciate that. And I love the information that you shared today and the conversation that we got to have about students with disabilities and how as teachers, we can better support them and think about those outcomes. So I have loved having you on the show. Hopefully we'll get to have you back and maybe we can talk about some of those other things that we tried not to get distracted by while we were talking. So I appreciate that. And again, listeners, watchers, please make sure that you follow Maya check out her resources and download that handy guide. I'm sure you will find it helpful. All right, Ms. Maya, we will talk to you soon. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right.